Hello and welcome to COP26 Covered, ED's daily podcast show, which is all about, you guessed it, COP26. Uh, And this is really an episode like no other because to mark Transport Day here at COP, we're bringing you net zero planes, trains and automobiles with first-hand experience of what the future actually looks like for our global transport system. So get ready for a journey on a hydrogen powered train, a chat next to an all electric plane and a few barrel rolls in a zero carbon autonomous vehicle. All of that and more on the COP26 covered podcast. Yes, hello and welcome back to episode 12 of COP26 Covered. Uh, We're reaching the dramatic end of this series of podcasts after an exciting couple of weeks. Uh, But it's fair to say that excitement is peaking for me today because, as you can probably tell, I've escaped the confines of my gloomy hotel room and I'm stood right now in the centre of Glasgow Central Station. Um, Getting some weird looks from passers-by, I must say, but I don't care because I am here at the start of what should be a cracking episode of the show. So um, a special shout-out, first of all, to Matt and to Sarah, the ED team once again, who have been covering all of the major COP announcements on the main ED website, including the highly anticipated release of the draft plan, uh, which essentially sets out what the negotiators are hoping the outcome of this summit will be. So do check that out on the ED.net website right now. But whilst Sarah and Matt have been covering all of that, I thought I'd take a deeper dive into Transport Day uh, with a first-hand look at some of the technologies and products that really represent the zero-emission transport systems we're striving for from this summit. So it's quite a plan, and yes, I have been driven by my lifelong desire to be able to get planes, trains and automobiles into an episode title, Uh, but here's how it's going to work. So, working backwards, uh, I'm going to end the episode with a chat with the team at Virgin Media O2, who are over in the COP26 green zone, showcasing the role of mobile connectivity in creating cleaner transport through connected and autonomous vehicles. Before that, I'm going to be over in the blue zone, I think. Uh, It's not been sorted yet, but uh, I'll be speaking with the head of sustainability at Rolls-Royce, the engineering company and the engine manufacturer, which is here showcasing its own innovative fuel cell system for aircraft and possibly also for the shipping industry as well. And that brings me to right now, because, as I say, uh, I'm stood here in a very busy Glasgow Central Station and I'm about to jump on board Hydroflex. Uh, This is the UK's first hydrogen-ready train. So Hydroflex is a pretty normal looking passenger train, although it's wrapped in a a vinyl, um, which can effectively operate under both electric and battery power, making it the world's first tri-mode hydrogen, electric and battery train. The train's been developed through a partnership with Porterbrook, which owns almost a, a third of the National Rail passenger fleet, and the University of Birmingham, with financial support coming in from the government via Innovate UK. And so, uh, I've very kindly been invited to board this train by Porterbrook, and on board I'll be having a chat with their Head of Sustainability about how it all works and and what it really represents for the future of sustainable transport systems. So, I have no idea what to expect. I've heard that Prime Minister Boris Johnson is about to turn up as well, so uh, apologies in advance if the audio levels are a bit crazy. Uh, But the next you'll hear from me will hopefully be on board this hydrogen train with the Porterbrook team. So, let's do it. Okay, so uh, here I am on board Hydroflex. Uh, we've just jumped on the train. It's not moving yet. 
uh, you'll be pleased to hear. So the noise levels are relatively low, although there's a few people starting to get on board. Uh, and I am delighted to be stood here with Bruno Muller, the Head of Strategy and Sustainability at Porterbrook, which, uh, as I mentioned, owns and operates uh, the project. Um, Bruno, thanks for welcoming me on board. Talk to us a little bit about um, how this concept first came about, who's been involved and, and why you've decided to bring it to life here at COP. So, so this project really started back in 2019 where we launched the first prototype of a uh, hydrogen train in partnership with the University of Birmingham. What we wanted to do as part of our contribution to COP26 was to bring a fully productionized version of the Hydroflex ready for passenger service uh, as soon as next year. So what we want to get out of this really is to show that yes, uh, rail is already a relatively clean mode of transport, we want to build on that uh, to, to make sure it remains at the heart of future transport systems. So explain what we're kind of looking at right now then, I mean I'll, I'll explain visually and then you can explain perhaps technically, so it looks like there's a load of kind of black tanks essentially, um, looking like very large long elongated kind of boilers. So we are standing in the hydro chamber where we have 36 tanks uh, storing hydrogen. In total we have 227 kilograms of hydrogen on board which allows for a 350 mile range. Uh, the hydrogen on those tanks then powers the fuel cells uh, next door uh, and it's a chemical process which combines hydrogen from the tanks and oxygen from the air and that produces three things heat, water and electricity, which is the bit we are interested about. That then goes into the battery system we have underneath the train that in turn powers the train itself. Wow. Okay, and so these are the hydrogen tanks, but I'm aware that there's a lot more to this train than just the hydrogen power as well. So talk to us a bit about what else makes this a kind of really super sustainable train. So, so this was actually a really exciting 10-month upcycling project. We are starting with a 30-year-old electric train, which we are converting to hydrogen. And as part of that, we've done everything in terms of the refurb, upcycling, to deliver a fully sustainable uh, uh, solution, not just on the traction element, but more widely. So the seats are made of e-leather, where we are reusing uh, off-cut materials to minimize the use of new resources. Uh, we, have a, um, we have tables and workshops which are made out of recycled bottles, so we've tried to embed that sustainability thinking throughout the project, really, and not just on the traction uh, side of things. Wow, okay. Um, yeah, and I should explain in terms of what we're looking at, looking down the corridor of the train, past all the people and other media, um, and there are kind of like boardrooms and boardroom tables, right, So, th and sofas we walk past even with TV screens, so it's quite a different sort of looking train model, right, compared with what you would usually expect to see on a train? Yeah, absolutely. So this was designed bespoke for COP26, where we want to have the opportunity to invite delegates on board to have meetings about the COP uh, in this live rail environment, uh, obviously for a passenger operation this would be converted back to a more traditional uh, seating environment. Okay, interesting. Um, so back to this hydrogen power then. Um, when it comes to this kind of uh, groundbreaking fuel cell technology, what needs to happen to try and make this thing kind of get developed and scaled up across the UK and, and globally? What are the kind of challenges or obstacles that need to be overcome? So there was, well, apart from the engineering challenge, uh, and, and it's been fantastic work from the team and all the suppliers to get that over the line, there was a very significant safety and approval piece because it's a new technology that needs to be um, fully uh, tested and proven before it's rolled out in the network. So we've done that. Um, apart from this, the 
inherent challenge with hydrogen is storage. As you can see on those tanks, uh, it takes a significant amount of space. So one of the key challenges for future designs uh, will be optimizing that space use and, and, and providing more space for the passengers on board. Uh, and that one of the key elements to get that you know, fully rolled out uh, in the UK and internationally. And um, realistically then, where do you see this kind of hydrogen-powered train market going in the coming months and years? Do you do you envisage a point where all trains on our railways could be hydrogen-powered, or is that too far? No, I, I think that's a step too far. Um, hydrogen will be a contribution towards a more sustainable railway. Uh, at the moment, we have 38% 30, uh, of the network which is electrified, uh, and the challenge is what do we do with the remaining 62%? And largely, for the vast majority of this, probably over 80%, the solution will be electrification. So you'll have pockets uh, at a market for hydrogen, battery trains, uh, but this is complementary. So this is one of many steps uh, we need to take uh, you know, to, to, to build future-proof sustainable railways. And just finally then, I'm, I'm looking out the window, reminding myself that we're here still in Glasgow, um, COP26 host city, um, speaking on Transport Day, of course. So what would you like to kind of see come out of this COP to support and help advance low-carbon transport systems like this hydrogen train we're in right now? So, so it's, it, it, it's important to say that rail is already a, a one of the cleanest modes of transport. In the UK, that's 1.4% of transport emission for 10% of passenger miles. So at COP, and I think rightly so, we are focusing on the big issues. We, we're going to talk a lot about EV vehicles, and, 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 and that's the right thing to do because we're looking at the, the biggest problems. And uh, rail is a very small part of the problem, but we think it can be a very significant part, significant part of the solution. So that's very much what we're here to demonstrate at COP. Uh, today and what we'd like to, uh, to to see come out of that with rail being really seen as the backbone of future transport systems. Uh, well that's a positive uh, note to end on Bruno. Um, I know that we haven't got long left before this uh, journey sets off and I hear that Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in town so he's going to come up and have a look at this train as well so um, I'm sure we'll be escorted out in due course. Thank you very much for, uh, for allowing me on board and, and, and speaking with, with me this afternoon. And uh, I'm about to hop off and head straight over to the next segment for this podcast because we're moving from trains to planes. Uh, So it's back over to the COP26 centre for a chat with Rolls-Royce about an all-electric aircraft that they have on display here, along with the future of sustainable aviation. So yes, uh, here I am then, uh, back in the buzz of the COP26 Blue Zone, uh, and I should say there are no planes on display here where we are right now, um, but I was just over in the Green Zone where Rolls-Royce has been showcasing its fuel cell technology and an all-electric aircraft. Did take a few photos, I'll put them up on the ED website alongside this episode. But to talk about all of that right now, I'm delighted to be joined by Rolls-Royce's Head of Sustainability, Rachel Everard. Rachel, hello, it sounds like you've had a very busy afternoon here on Transport Day. Yeah, hi Luke. Yes, we have. It's been been fantastic actually to be here, part of the buzz of COP. As you probably are aware, aviation emissions aren't formally part of the UN negotiation process. But we are here to talk about what we are doing. It's such a critical part of our transport system. It's such an important part of our emissions footprint. And also, importantly, it's a sector that we believe will grow in emissions kind of contribution over the next few years, as in terms of proportion, as other sectors that have easier pathways to decarbonise do decarbonise around us. Aviation's emissions proportionately are likely to grow. So it's really important that we're here as part of the conversation around COP. 
And as I say, I was over on the Rolls-Royce stand in the green zone earlier, which I must say is uh, really eye-catching. Um, there was some fuel cell tech on display alongside a kind of mock aircraft. So tell me exactly what I was looking at, probably in more technical terms, um, there outside the green zone. So you were looking at a full-size model, a one-to-one -one model of our Spirit of Innovation aircraft, which is an all-electric racer plane, essentially. Um, the reason it's a model is it has to stand outside in Glasgow for three weeks, and unfortunately, the aircraft itself is not quite designed for those conditions. But what we're here to demonstrate is the capability of electric flight. Um, that plane will and is flying today, um, has done about 20 test flights now, and aimed at breaking the world speed record for all-electric flight. So you were looking at a model of the world's fastest electric vehicle. Wow, how fast are we talking? Talking 300 miles per hour plus. The current world record is about 200, so we are going above and beyond that. Okay, wow, interesting, I did not know that. So what have been the main challenges when it comes to building the world's fastest um, electric vehicle? So what we have done is essentially taken a racer plane model as we know it today and electrified it. We are looking, that is the world's most powerful battery that will ever take to the skies, or has ever taken to the skies yet, I should say. Um, through that we're building a whole supply chain, proving capability, testing out aerodynamics in a whole different way. We obviously at Rolls-Royce know a lot about aerodynamics and about how to make things fly. When you take away the gas turbine or the turboprop engine and electrify that system, whole different weight distribution, whole different system to manage, controls, and the pilot has to get used to how to deal with an electric motor or electric batteries rather than what he's been traditionally kind of practicing with which has been our company Spitfire so quite different leapfrog in technology um, and then you had the challenge of all of that in innovation and then taking it to the sky in a safe controlled manner. Interesting and uh, you mentioned the planes called the spirit of innovation which I love um, could this kind of technology then be scaled up to commercial si sized airliners and if so where what role does innovation play in, in that? So the spirit of innovation itself is designed to go really fast, um, but what we can take is the technology and the capability we've built through that project and have that in real life application. So we believe that in the next five years you will start to see electric flight commercially available, whether that's electric vertical takeoff and landing, flying taxis as you might think of them, or small kind of scale hopper aircraft connecting islands potentially, or crossing fjords in northern Norway or Scottish Outer Hebrides is a market we like to talk about quite a lot. Um, so the technology that we've developed through the Spirit of Innovation project has that real life application where we can learn from that project, which is iconic, it's inspiring, it's fascinating, but actually really think about where that fits within the transport system so much potential for this technology then and it can also be translated into shipping as well right is that yeah i think that's one of the strengths of the rolls royce group we are active across all different parts of the transport sector whether that's rail shipping off highway applications so we're building on technologies that we've developed perhaps for the rail and then taking them to the sky okay um in terms of Rolls-Royce's broader plans then for only selling net zero compatible aviation products by 2030, what do you think that's going to actually look like come 2030? So I think you will see a whole different way of transport and particularly flying. You will still see some of the kind of conventional technologies, the flight you would take to New York today, um, you'll see that, but that will be powered in a way that's completely compatible with net zero. So what we can essentially do is take that technology, the gas turbine powered large wide haul flight, but put a different, different fuel system in there. So it's no longer coming from dead dinosaurs or fossil fuels. It's coming from a sustainable source, a synthetically derived source ultimately, which has a net zero life cycle CO2 emissions.
What you'll also see though is different ways of connecting. So we'll see whole new ways of connecting from A to B, which will be net zero, fully electric. And I think that's really exciting and it requires us to really reimagine the transport system as we know it today, where you can actually imagine a flying taxi landing on, a, on the roof of a building, perhaps even the buildings we're hearing in Glasgow, and connecting you to A to B. Um, that unlocks opportunities, not just in inner city environments where perhaps a net zero low noise solution could be fantastic, but also in rural communities that aren't connected. You can imagine remote communities can really benefit from the socio-economic opportunities that aviation can bring through a decarbonised solution. Mm. And we are here still in Glasgow. We've seen commitments from nations to develop uh, 1.5 degree aligned aviation emission goals on the road to 2050 and, and for airlines to buy more alternative fuels essentially. Are you pleased with those kind of commitments we're seeing coming out of COP? Would you like to see more across policy, industry alike? Yeah, I think we're pleased with the progress that's being made. We have to recognise aviation is inherently an international sector. Um, so we need to look at global policy levers to make it a, a, a level playing field for everybody and avoid things like carbon leakage, for example, which could be really damaging to our national commitments if we were not to prioritise global consistency and policy in aviation because it is cross-border by its very nature. Um, so the progress has been great. I think what we need to see now is more action, um, more more focus as well on thinking not just how we decarbonise the transport system we know today but also how we create the policy environment that can enable some of the new technologies that we are pioneering. When you say more action, anything in particular that, you can, that kind of stands out to you as to sort of areas you would like to see particular growth in or progress or development? I think one thing that's really clear in aviation is no single solution, so I'm not going to advocate for one thing. Um, I think we need to see continued priority on technological advancement rather than market-based measures, for example. I think we need to see continued consistency in global policy, but we ultimately need to maintain the view, I think, that flying is a really good thing. It helps to connect people, it helps to bring us all here together in Glasgow today to have these really important conversations. What we need to do is focus on the actions that will divorce flying from its high carbon impact. Not much then, it sounds like it's a, it's a yeah. So uh, Rachel, I know you've been super busy here today. You've got more appointments coming up as well. So thanks very much for speaking with me this afternoon. Uh, and this marks part two of three of this podcast episode because uh, we've done net zero trains. We've now done net zero planes. So now it's time to talk automobiles because I'm going to head back over to the green zone to try and find uh, an autonomous connected vehicle, which I'm told is there, which has been inspired by the guys at Virgin Media O2. Uh, and I need to get my skates on so I might just have to jump back on a rickshaw uh, so I'll head back over there now. Okay well uh, here I am then back in the green zone uh, and I'm, uh, I'm sat here in a, in a fascinating stand actually that's kind of outside the main entrance into the kind of the, the green zone. It's actually part of the stand of the GSM Association or the GSMA which is an industry organisation that represents the interests of, of mobile network operators worldwide. More than the 750 operators are, are full GSMA members and I'm here uh, with one of the largest of those members Virgin Media O2 and just to explain my surroundings, I can see in front of me a Renault Twizy um, electric vehicle, a series of screens where it's connected up essentially to, to VR, VR, if you like, and then a large TV screen where you can, can see where you're driving this electric vehicle. And I'm told it's uh, highly connected, which we'll be discussing uh, in a moment. And I'm here to be shown through this kind of electric vehicle experience by uh, Tracy Herald, Virgin Media O2's Head of Sustainability and Social Impact. Tracy, uh, hello. Thanks for meeting me in, in this uh, 
quite serene but also quite surreal uh, spot here against the COP26 backdrop. Hi Luke, lovely to be here. Yeah, great to join you at COP26 and in a very sunny green zone. Yeah, it is sunny. I should add that as well. It's sunny and it's, uh, yeah, this is perhaps dangerously close to becoming a bit of a greenhouse, but um, <laughs> we'll see how we go. Uh, and also joining us is um, Elizabeth Rockford, um, who's the Partnership and Innovation Manager at Virgin Media O2. Hi Luke, great to be here. Tell us what I'm looking at here and where Virgin Media O2 comes into all of this. Sure. So what you're looking at is a Renault Twizy, which for anyone that doesn't know is a bit of an unusual looking car. It's very, very small. But what we're doing with it is we're showcasing the power of mobile connectivity to transform the transport sector. So we've taken a Renault Twizy and we've converted it into a connected autonomous vehicle. What that means basically is that it's a driverless car. So there are a range of different benefits to this. We have essentially used sensors and LiDAR technology to make sure that the car can drive without the need for an, a human person actually driving it. It means it can pick up on the surroundings around it. We've used then 5G to connect it, which also means then that it knows where it's going. It's offering live data, which includes data from an air pollution monitor, so it can also assess air pollution or congestion on its routes. Um, and it's also feeding back that live data that means that we can optimize routes remotely too. So we can actually drive that car remotely as well as drive it sitting in it whilst not actually driving it. <laughs> wow, it's amazing to kind of hear this stuff, this stuff happening around us. So um, we'll come back, I guess, to, to, this, to this car, but I suppose just to set the scene and the context in regards to Virgin Media O2's uh, involvement, it's worth noting, of course, that uh, this is a relatively recent joint venture between Liberty Global, the owner of Virgin Media, and, and Telefonica, owner of O2, through that sort of merger of the two respective UK businesses. Tracy, I suppose, first of all, before looking at this kind of connected car, this huge merger of the past year almost, um, how, how has that kind of impacted, I guess, your role and the kind of work that you're doing and that we're seeing here today? Yeah, it's a great question, Luke. And I think, you know, the bringing together of Virgin Media and O2 was a really exciting opportunity. It was a chance to bring together both our mobile network but also our fixed connectivity to provide support to over 46 million customers across the UK. So a really fantastic opportunity, I think, for us to think about how we use 5G and connectivity, not only to connect people, but as Beth has already described, to connect the future of transport, for example. So in terms of my own role at Virgin Media O2, We've obviously always been very ambitious about managing our own carbon emissions and our own carbon impact. So we've set uh, on day one a goal to be net zero in our operations by 2025. And we're shortly going to be announcing a full value chain goal that will follow. Um, but just as Beth described here today, what's really interesting for us is going beyond our own carbon impacts to think about the fantastic enabling role of our technology to drive the kind of smart and sustainable future that we're all uh, hoping for. Okay, interesting. And um, so this car then and where the kind of connectivity comes in, Beth, what is Virgin Media O2 doing that's kind of on this car that it's connected? And, and how is the organisation then collaborating? Who's it collaborating with? Which organisations it, is it kind of liaising with on the data that's collected? Yeah, so what we're doing is providing O2 5G connectivity. It means that the car itself is connected, which means it's, it can feed in live data to a range of our partners, and we can also control it remotely, and it can even speak to other connected cars as well, which is quite cool. So it is a consortium, so we're working with a range of partners. That includes Aviva, the UK Space Agency, 
ESA and Darwin, and we're trialling it at a range of locations, including the Smart Mobility Living Lab in London and also Millbrook Proving Ground, which is near Luton. What's the plan with this then? Is it, is, I assume obviously it's going to be to kind of scale it up, but is it kind of working with car makers like Renault and others? And where do you see this kind of going? What's the kind of, I guess, yeah, the business plan behind all of this? So what we're doing is showcasing real-world examples of how connectivity can transform other sectors. So in this case, it's the travel sector. And I think whilst in this individual case we're looking at this very small Renault Twizy, you can apply that same technology to a range of other vehicles. And it means that the benefits can be different from each vehicle as well as it can scale the actual benefits itself from an environmental perspective as well as managing fleets and even from individual people's perspectives. So for someone who's in this car, if you're just in a Twizy or you're, you know, you're using it on any other car that you might drive yourself, it means that, of course, you don't actually have to drive it, right? So you can do whatever else you want to do in the car. You can better use your time whilst you're there. It also means that it's a more efficient vehicle itself. So there's less idling, there's less acceleration. It's essentially a better driver than you are, which also means there's less wear and tear on the car itself. So ultimately, it's more efficient um, and, it, and it can last longer. But when you then apply that same technology to other forms of vehicles, so for instance, if you take the example of delivery drivers or trucks, they can drive connected to each other. So for instance, a fleet of them could platoon, which also means that it's a more efficient way of driving. But also the people that are managing that fleet can do so remotely. So they can optimize routes, they can get f live data that's feeding back to them to change routes as they go. So it's kind of offering a range of benefits across the sector from the individual person's perspective to uh, industry at large, really. In terms of kind of scaling this up, and moving it, I suppose, well, it's not quite a kind of concept stage, it's beyond that, I suppose, but actually getting this into that kind of level, trucks, fleets, etc. What's going to kind of get you there? What are the steps to, required to actually make this viable and make this a reality, um, particularly initially here in the UK? So firstly, we're demonstrating, I suppose, the power that it has, and that involves working with a range of partners, which is why this is part of a consortium and why everyone has a really important role to play. So we're showcasing the power of the technology in order to, to really get people to believe it. But there's also con continuing advances in the technology itself that's needed. So there are different levels of autonomous vehicles. This is a level four, but it can go up to level five. So there's a role for the technology and the trials and the innovation to play to actually improve that technology itself. But then, of course, there's also like regulation and policy and making sure that that's keeping pace with the technology so that you know, we can all own one of these cars ourselves in the future. And I think I'd probably just build on that to say, I mean, working with our partners at GSMA, they've actually found through one of their recent reports that 65% um, of the carbon emissions reduction across the transport industry could come from digital infrastructure to support electric vehicles, as Beth's been talking about, but also working from home, also supporting with logistics and fleet haulage. Um, so for us, I think there's an enormous opportunity to be capitalised upon around the technology. And I think your question's a really interesting one, Luke, about just how do we evangelise this? Because it feels like a real secret weapon, actually, in the fight against climate change. And I think part of the challenge that we all have to face into is that these trials at the moment are really demonstrating enormous potential and enormous sustainability benefits. But I think it's on all of us, as Beth says, to work with partners in industry to really showcase and demonstrate just what we can achieve in a really short space of time. And the other kind of thing this touches on is, is this kind of development of, of networks that work for, for people and enable that sort of modal shift across and, and sort of beyond urban centres. 
I mean, what role do, do digital technologies and, and telecoms companies like yours have to play in, in kind of creating those networks and making that kind of connectivity between people um, a lot easier? Yeah, I think one of the really interesting things that we're looking at here is also how our own individual behaviour may quite likely change over time. So, you know, I spoke about the individual person's experience of actually sitting in a car that they're not driving, the way that you can better use your time by when you actually have to drive. But there's also a wider question about the need for vehicles that we own, and mobility as a service is one of the things that we can explore, particularly with connected autonomous vehicles as well. And we can look at whether actually we need to own our own cars, you know, whether we car share, whether we um, just rent them temporarily. And, you know, connectivity and having a range of driverless cars means that we can access those through services as well when we're in urban environments um, or remote environments as well. Um, and it just generally means that we can also look at the ways of how our individual relationship with the transport sector can change and how perhaps it should change, um, but technology like this can accelerate that change too. A bit of a geeky question that's just sort of popped up as I'm looking at this car just next to us. How many kind of data points are we talking here? A lot. <laughs> I mean, like, the beauty is that one of the things I was speaking about earlier is that being able to get live data from this car is really powerful for a range of different players. So I spoke about the fact that, you know, someone that's planning routes on behalf of their fleet can optimize that immediately, right? As well as the ability of the car itself to speak to other cars and interact with them. But there's also the air pollution monitoring perspective as well, and actually being able to work out what are the real world benefits of this car as it drives around what is congestion or pollution doing in different routes and how that then affects planning more widely and the ability to you know, change routes and optimise routes live based on the data that it's receiving. Wow, I want to get in there and, and, and try it out in a moment, which I'll, I'll do. I'm sure we'll share some photos on social media and in the episode that airs on ed.net of this podcast. Um, finally, though, just remembering, uh, I guess, the, the context and where we are for a moment, this backdrop of, of COP26, um, which could, of course, have a huge bearing on the future of sustainable transport, not just in the UK, but globally. Um, Tracy, what are you kind of hoping to, to see come out of these talks and, and what support um, is required to essentially accelerate this clean transport transition we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, what are our hopes? I mean, hope's a really interesting word, Luke, and I think hope is exactly what we're all hoping for out of COP26, the sense that although we are facing into a climate crisis, there is a really incredible opportunity for us to innovate, um, to work together with government and business and NGOs to really try and find the solutions to um, the climate change crisis that we're facing into. So in the context of more sustainable transport, I think one of the things that we really need is to, um, to work more closely with government to help them understand the possibilities of connectivity and technology and really helping us towards a more sustainable connected transport system in the future. And I think, you know, interestingly, when we've seen the recent uh, net zero plan from the government, it's been very light on the role of digital connectivity in really helping to drive and accelerate the change to net zero. So I think we've got an influencing role to play, but I think we're really calling on government and other industries to work with us uh, in partnership to really help us take trials like this one um, to scale in a way that feels really meaningful and that will help us on the journey to net zero. Well, um, yeah, these final few days of COP are, of course, going to be crucial. Uh, but I suppose regardless of, of what comes out of 
of COP, it's clear that a, a clean transport revolution, as we can see here, is already underway, as is a, a digital technology uh, revolution. Um, and the pace of change we're going to be seeing over the next few years is quite remarkable, I think. Um, just, again, having a look at what we've got around us, I don't think even a few years ago we would have had as much connectivity and enablement here that we've got in front of us. Um, so I'm going to get in the car, as I say. Um, and on that note, I'll bring this chat to a close. Um, Tracy, Beth, thanks so much for, for speaking with me here. Uh, and thanks as well to Virgin Media O2 for their continued support of ED's COP26 coverage. Thank you. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Luke. Yes, thank you very much to the Virgin Media O2 team there. Uh, and I'm quite glad that we stopped recording at that point because I decided to try out the autonomous car and proceeded to lose control after about 10 seconds, spinning off the circuit and barrel rolling off the end of the game. So thank God that was only virtual reality and apologies and thanks again to those guys. And indeed, thank you to all of today's podcast guests. Uh, and there you have it. That's a wrap. Uh, I've completed my personal challenge to deliver up my planes, trains and automobiles episode of this podcast so my life is officially complete as you can probably tell i've not yet gone back to my hotel room i thought i'd stop off back here in my favorite place the action zone to sign off the show um, so the sad news is that the countdown to the end of cop is well and truly on because we have just a couple more days here and a couple more episodes therefore of cop 26 covered to bring you but the good news is that we're going out with a bang with some great episodes and podcast guests lined up so Tomorrow it's Cities, Regions and Built Environment Day and so I'll be delivering up a very special group discussion with a selection of built environment leaders to discuss exactly what this COP means for the future of our buildings. And then on Friday we'll hopefully be hearing once again from Sarah and Matt for a grand finale. So stay tuned for all that and do make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. You can subscribe to COP26 Covered wherever you get your podcasts and for more information and audio links just visit ed.net forward slash podcasts forward slash COP26. So from another action-packed transport day here at COP26 I'll say goodbye and see you tomorrow.